Hello everyone, how are you doing? It's a really big venue and you're all spread out. If you, I think it would be do Daniel, uh, Daniel a great favor if you could uh, uh, shuffle in a bit if you, if you are so inclined. Um, I've uh, had the privilege of working with Daniel over the last six years. Uh, we met first, I think, on the Gau train and had a, a, the first interview, if you like, on the Gau train. And it's been a wild ride since then. Uh, he's an extraordinary individual, always pushing the boundaries, uh, challenging conventional thinking, and I'm sure that he won't disappoint today. I really had to rack my brain to think about what funny story I could tell, and there are many, um, about Daniel. Um, but I, I think I'll not embarrass him too heavily. Um, uh, but rather talk about his, uh, his, his prowess rather than uh, embarrassing things he's done. So whenever we talk about exercise at the office or who's doing what, um, we always hope that Daniel isn't around because uh, it all makes us look uh, very bad. Um, and my favorite exercise story for Daniel is to, is to talk about this crazy thing that he does um, once a year called the War Trail Challenge, which I all encourage you to uh, look up on your phones afterwards. Um, but uh, I, I like to tell the story because it tells you something about uh, Daniel and how committed he is um, and how far he's, he's willing to go. This is a, uh, and correct me by distances if they're wrong, Daniel, a 56k trail run, which is part of the Sky Run route, followed immediately thereafter by a 118-kilometer uh, mountain bike ride, followed immediately thereafter by a 60-kilometer paddle, which takes how long? 30-something hours back-to-back. So I hope I have embarrassed you a little bit, uh, yeah, just to, to give you a little bit of a sense of, of the man. Um, I know the talk won't uh, disappoint. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Barry. Not really the introduction that I was hoping for, but thanks anyway. Um, thank you very much for all attending. The topic that I'm going to be talking about today is one that I hope and should make all of us a little bit uncomfortable. But I'd like you to sit back and, and listen to the ideas that I'm going to share today and, and think about it for yourself about um, what this means for you. And the idea of this, uh, or the premise of the presentation came about as, a, as an idea that was implanted into my brain when I was quite young. It was when my grandfather committed suicide. He did so over a long protracted period with alcohol and tobacco. You see, my grandfather was a bit of an entrepreneur in his youth, and he lived in Newcastle, and he started a number of companies, most of them successful and some of them less so. But the one passion in his life was my grandmother. They met when they were very young, and they had a whirlwind romance. And they got married, and they lived together in the fairy tale idea until death parted them. Only that came a bit sooner than they were expecting. When my grandmother was, a, was in her late, in her, in her mid-50s, she found a lump in her chest. And she didn't have it analyzed in the hope that it would go away. Six years later, the lump was bigger than it was. And when she had analysis done, they found that she had metastasized cancer. And the disease was eating her body from inside out, and six years later, she died an agonizing death. And my grandfather said that when she passed away, his soul died with her. And in the days after that, in the years after that, he proceeded to try and kill himself with drink and alcohol. Now, I'm not being facetious when I say this. When I spoke to him, this is what he said. He said he'd lived too long and that he was just trying to kill his own body. Only he, didn't, he wasn't successful. He lived to the grand old age of 84, and it was a pretty miserable existence. So while this was a profound experience for him, it didn't really impact me at that stage, or I thought it wouldn't. But the idea of living too long, the seed of that idea, was implanted into my mind. When I became older, I started pursuing my own career, and I found myself working in healthcare. And healthcare is all about health. It's about keeping people healthy, 
making sick people healthier and getting people that are sick to live longer. And there's been amazing innovations in this space. We've seen things change over the past couple of years to a significant degree. And for those of you that follow AI and technology and innovation, will understand the concept of an exponential growth in technology and that the change that I experienced from the healthcare that my parents had access to is infinitesimal compared to what my children would experience when they're the same age that I am. And for instance, one of the things that we can see this are things like robotic surgery for, a, for, for, for something like a heart valve replacement. Now, for those of you that haven't seen or haven't had the experience of what open heart surgery is like, I'd encourage you to download a video on YouTube and turn the sound up nice and high. The doctor literally takes what can only be described as an angle grinder and grinds through your sternum and then takes a ratcheting device and ratchets your chest open until your ribs break. And then he takes his hand, puts it inside your chest and fixes your heart while you're filleted like a fish. And as you can imagine, this procedure takes quite some time to recover from. And if we look at the trends over time of what these surgeries look like, we see an increasing trend as more people have heart illnesses and they need the operation. But then at advanced ages, the trend drops down. And that's not simply because people that are older have miraculous recoveries and they don't need heart surgery anymore. It's because they'd never survived the operation. But now robotic surgery allows us to do operations and it's changing the curve. For someone that's 88 or 89, we can now do a heart valve operation. And this creates a place where that person would have died, but now they survive longer. And what this does is it creates this plethora of new things that are happening. We're able to live longer and live better with the technology that's happening. There's robotic devices that help sick people remember to take their medication. There's pacemakers that adjust your heart rate depending on how you're exercising at the moment. There's robotic surgery where you can do virtual surgery in someone's mind before you actually do the surgery. And all of this is helping us survive longer from a medical standpoint. And longevity is, is seen as the holy grail, literally the holy grail. And there's a lot of money being pumped into the field of longevity and exciting innovations. They've identified single genetic modifications in mice that give them an additional half of their life and, and delays the aging process significantly. And there's also traditional studies that have been done about societies where people live long. And the best work on this ground has been work done by a man called Dan Bjoitner. And he identified in societies where people become very old, nine key characteristics. They exercise. Physical activity is one of the foundations of those societies. People have a sense of purpose. They have something that they live for. Relaxation is highly prized in those societies. And they drink alcohol, unfortunately in moderate quantities. They consume a plant-based diet and they don't overeat. They eat until they're about 70% full. All of them have some form of religious view that they follow. And the family as a unit is very important. And that extends to the society as a whole, with a strong societal impact in those societies. And this is here where our modern way of thinking about longevity and healthcare departs a bit from what history tells us. And we have this idea that if we do these things and we implement them in our lives and we program them, we're going to turn to that guy that can do one-on push-ups at age 90 and he'll be able to outrun guys that are 50 years younger than he is. And the father of this idea was this man. Now, all of you would have been impacted by this man's life. For anyone that's ever done a jumping jack or a star jump, the jumping jack was named after this man. His name is Jack LaLanne. And he was the author or architect of institutionalized fitness. He was the first guy to start a gym, if you will, or a health spa in that day. 
He was also one of the first guys to prance around in a leotard on TV and get us all to jump around in the morning in those fitness shows. And the premise of his entire foundation or his message was that if you look after yourself physically, you'll live to a ripe, old, long age. And in many ways, Jack LaLanne did that. The photo on the, on the left there is him at age 35, and as you can see, he looks pretty good. And the photo on the right is him at 96, and he died at age 96. And he did amazing feats right up into his old age. When he was 72, he swam a distance of one mile in freezing water while towing 72 rowboats, each with a person in them. So he was towing 72 rowboats, 72 people, while his hands were handcuffed behind his back at age 72. And this idea of us all turning into Jack LaLanne is one that is branded and marketed for all of us. And we've all seen it. But what actually happens when we get old? Well, society is struggling with this in many modern societies with a growing old population. And what we found is that old people still get sick. Only they remain sick for longer. They cost more. If you retire at a normal retirement age, you're going to have to carry yourself for a longer time if you live to a long time. And the idea that was implanted into my mind of living too long from my grandfather's experience germinated in, 20, in 2014 when I attended uh, the International Actuarial Conference in Washington. And the plenary speaker at that venue was an American that was a typical bombastic American, and he, was, he called himself a theorist or a thinker or just a really smart guy. And his topic was, will we ever get to an average age of 100? And he talked a while to all of us, he was, and he was not an actuary, and he talked a while about the, the errors of extrapolating improvements in mortality and how you can't just look at the data. And at mid-presentation, he caught himself and he just said, well, actually, no, we won't ever see an average age of 100 because being 100 really sucks. And the premise of his presentation was that basically it's like driving an old car. You can replace certain parts of the car and we can fix certain things in the car, but eventually, everything on the car will be really, really old. And if we look at healthcare data and we look at longevity and, 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 and mortality, if we look at a prime example of what we would see as a utopian society that get healthcare right, that have got low crime rates, that get the things right that we all espouse to, Canada is a good example. And for many people, Canada is seen as this utopia they'd like to get to one day. And if we look at the trends in the Canadian society, we see that mortality improved significantly. And then it hit an access point where the improvement stopped. And in some developed countries, that trend has actually turned around. There are significant portions of people in America where the mortality trend has turned around and they're actually living shorter lives than previous generations. And most of us were familiar with this theme or idea that we will be the first generation to outlive our children. And there's a host of reasons being put forward to this. Um, it's related to societal factors. It's because we're fat and we're unhealthy. It's because we are under stress the whole time. But perhaps it's, just because, perhaps it's just because when you become old, life really sucks. Is that when we solve the problems that were supposed to kill us at age 75, we encounter new ones at age 82. If I fix your heart when you're 78, you might die from cancer at age 80, a cancer that you would not have contracted had you died from heart disease a year before. And this idea of Quality and longevity is a very contentious one, and it, it asks questions of us that we're not really comfortable to answer. But the theme of making a judgment on longevity based on quality is not one that's foreign to us. Actually, if you think about a pet like a dog, we've all had an experience, if you've had a dog, where it was time to take Fuzzy for the long drive to the vet. And at that stage, you're making a judgment on life versus quality. 
you're deciding that one more life, one more day of life for this animal is not worth the pain and suffering that that animal suffer in that life. So what if we can think about this in terms of human life? Now that's difficult. It's contentious and ethically you're getting into some difficult areas. Fundamentally it's difficult because we all have an optimism bias and we only think in times of our own life until where you are now. I'm 33, so my vision of life or my, my framework is 33 years of relatively healthy, stable lifetime. I don't think of my life as it getting to a point where it's actually going to be horrible to be alive. So if we were to start envisioning what it would be like if you were to build a quality index of life based on data, on qualitative information, we would theorize that this would be what it would look like. Being young is better than being old. It's, being, it's a universal factor due to a range of reasons. Even if you're disabled, being 10 and disabled is better than being 80 and disabled. So we would expect this curve to start off high and then gradually decrease. And then over time, you'll read a cliff point. You'll reach a cliff point and it'll fall down. For some of us, we'll have Jack LaLanne's experience. We'll have a great quality of life for a very long time. Others will have my grandmother's experience. You have a great quality of life and then at a relatively young age, it'll plateau down. The certainty is that death will cut this line for all of us at some stage. So the question and the premise of the research that we did if we only think of longevity in this singular fashion, of more being better, and we start pushing out this line, we're getting closer and closer to pushing people into that red area of a cliff fall in terms of the quality of their life. So if we were to build this quality index and see what were the key drivers of it, then we need to think about it not from the side of what gives us quality of life, because that's different. What makes me happy is not the same as what makes you happy. If we flip the problem around and we think about what significantly decreases quality of life, and what can we measure that will decrease quality of life, we can start defining a framework for how we would look at this. And we define these as lemon events. A lemon event is an event that significantly and permanently decreases your quality of life. And research has shown that there's three key pillars at advanced ages that influence the quality of one's life. The first is healthcare. So health data is something that we know a lot about, and we have a lot of data, and it's something that we can compare. I can tell you how healthy I am compared to everyone in the room. We've got defined metrics for that, and the information is available. The next is financial stability. Research has shown that one of the key drivers of happiness at advanced ages is your level of autonomy. If I'm 85 or 90, how much autonomy do I still have? What can I still do for myself? And one of the key influencing factors that erodes your autonomy is your financial stability. So we looked at your risk of becoming wholly financially dependent on someone else if you live too long. And then the last one is functional and relational factors. One of the things that also was prevalent in the research we did was that as we age, our goals change. When we're young, we've got lofty goals. We want to achieve, we want to change the world, we want to build a great career. Then as we get older, those goals narrow. You focus on the relationships around you. And it's not just related to age. We've seen the same trends for young people that get diagnosed with a terminal illness. Their goals changed exactly the same way as 85 or 90-year-olds would. So we also looked at data for that, about what would influence those key relational factors in your life. And there's two things. It's the availability of the key relationships as you get older, and your ability to interact in those relationships. So when we look at the healthcare pillar in terms of how we would define it and quantify it, there were, there were three key factors that drove lemon events in healthcare. The first is getting hit by lightning. It's one single event that's unexpected and sudden in its onset 
that decreases the quality of your life. A heart attack is an example of that. The next is disease. Chronic disease influences us, and the reason it's chronic is it lasts and stays with you for the rest of your life. One of the best examples I've heard of this was a doctor explaining chronic disease as having a low-grade infection for the rest of your life. It's something you have to live with, and you need to manage it forever. And the last is decay. So to give you guys an interesting little statistic, given that we all make a living out of our brains, when you're 30, your brain is massive. It's literally compressing against the inside of your skull. There's zero space to get anything in between your brain and your skull. By the time you're 75, there's two and a half centimeters of space between your brain and the inside of your skull. And your head, your brain is literally rattling around inside your head. So let's look at the data and see if we can define some trends in this. So the first one is looking at healthy people's data. We looked at major medical events that would significantly decrease your quality of life. And as you can see there, there's a defined trend by age. We looked at it from two ways, just major medical events from hospital events, and also using our DRG grouper that groups significant events based on similar diagnoses, costs, and the impact of those events. And the trends that we see there for those that work in healthcare aren't are completely familiar. It's called the age curve across claims, and it's something we all expect. What is a little bit of a new concept is to consider it in terms of your own life and to understand that if you're young and healthy now, your risk of being impaired or encountering a significant major medical event in the future is significantly higher when you're older than it is when you're young. If we then look at disease data, people that are sick and how that will change over their time, we see that the cost curves are slightly flatter. It means that people that have diabetes when they're 25 cost nearly as much or don't cost that much less than a healthy 25-year-old compared to a healthy 80-year-old. Now, that's not a good thing. What that tells us is that chronic disease impacts you significantly even at a young age. Even if you're young and healthy with a chronic disease, you're worse off compared to a sick 80-year-old than what a healthy 25-year-old is compared to a healthy 80-year-old. So chronic disease is a killer of quality of life, even from a very young age, and it erodes it systematically over time. When we looked at insurance-based information in terms of claims, we saw that the trend is a little bit flatter. We don't have this slower increase, and that's because of some of the underwriting protocols in the data. Some of those factors are excluded. So we had to mix both factors to make sure, from a quality index, we get the full picture of what chronic disease can do to your quality of life. And then the last one was mental illness. So mental illness is a particularly scary one for all of us. And what we found is when we just looked at the insurance-based data, the trends weren't as stark. We weren't seeing as many incidences as we were expecting. And this was surprising to us because research has shown by the time you're 85, nearly half of everybody that reaches that age will have some form of diagnosed dementia. Doesn't mean that only half of people will have dementia, Half of people that reach 85 will have diagnosed dementia. Now, those of you that have elderly grandparents all know that you become a bit forgetful. So the incidence of mental illness, we were expecting to be much higher. So what we did is we mixed in the medical scheme data that we have access to and looked at the related diagnoses that have something to do with mental health. So for instance, if you fall and break a hip, but it was because you were uncertain of where you are or you had the loss of balance because of your mental faculties going, we were able to identify that. And as you can see, the trends look significantly different. If you look at the, at the y-axis there, it nearly reaches one at advanced ages. So the chance of having some kind of mental impairment as we age 
is very, very high. These factors were combined to give us a risk factor by age of the first pillar in terms of healthcare. We then went to the second pillar, financial well-being. So financial factors relate to your ability to look after yourself financially when you age. It relates to your ability to be dependent on only yourself for your financial well-being. And that's different for all of us. It's unique in the way that we interact with our money. And some of you might have married a wealthy spouse. Some of you might be sitting on a large inheritance. So to say there's one scenario that fits all is not the right way to think of it. So for this particular example, we used the average. We used information of income and savings from people in LSM groups of 8 to 10, and we used the proportion that they would save on average. And we then built that up as a portfolio and looked at if they were to retire at age 65, how much money would they have and how long would that last them, given a range of scenarios for investment returns, low, medium, and high. And we then considered the risk factor of that in terms of two things, not having enough cash when you retire, under-provisioning, and then also in, in returns on investment, not being enough to maintain your standard of living. But then when you start thinking about this in terms of a quality index, in terms of what would, what would impact the quality of your life, this again becomes a bit of a contentious ethical issue. Some cultures don't mind looking after their elderly. In fact, many cultures it's encouraged, and the idea of a nursing home or a retirement home is foreign to many cultures. But in a Western society, it's very much part of our ethos. And I'm having this conversation with my own folks now that are standing on the brink of retirement. And to them, the idea of having to rely on me on some form of income is horrific to them. And they want to be certain that they can look after themselves. From my perspective, having to look after my folks for a year or two is not that much of an issue. The risk can, can be quantified in having to be wholly financially dependent on someone else for a protracted period. To be financially dependent on someone else for five, 10, or 15 years is the risk we're thinking about here. And let me sketch that with an example. Let's say you're a responsible 30-year-old. You call your broker and you tell him, I want to invest some money for retirement. He tells you, great. Let's expect you're going to live to 85. But let's work in a bit of a buffer. And we say you're going to live to age 90. You need to save X amount to make sure you've got enough money to last you to the age of 90. You're, you're well covered then. You're responsible, so you put that money away and you invest it every single year. You retire at age 65, and you live off your investment. But then, you hit, the, you, hit, you hit the longevity lottery, and you become 100 years old. It means that if you had a child when you were 30, that child is 35 when you retire. When you hit age 90, that child is 60. They now need to start caring for you for five years right before they retire. And then when you're 95, your own child retires, because let's say they were also responsible and also provisioned for themselves. Then your child that is retired now has to take care of you and himself on his retirement income that he only provisioned for for himself. And it's wholly possible that your grandchild might then have to be responsible for both you and your child until you eventually pass away at age 90. Now you can imagine the snowball effect that this can have across generations if we all start living to the grand old age of 100. So we wanted to quantify these factors as a financial destitution index. It's your risk of becoming wholly financially dependent on someone else as you age. And that's the black line at the bottom, with the other three lines being the investment projection over time from the age of retirement. And we see there that there's a significant increase in that line as we age. And by the time we are 100, it is nearly a, a, a financial certainty that you will be wholly dependent financially on someone else. For the average high-income earner in South Africa, 
that saves the average and does so from the time that they work. Then the last one, functional and relational factors. So there's two things that influence this. It's the availability of key relationships, and it's your ability to interact in those relationships. You can imagine if you and your wife had been married for a long time, or your husband, and suddenly one of you becomes deaf or mute or can't see anymore, or, or goodness forbid, all three, that would be quite a horrible existence for that person for the next five years. And when we look about how do we quantify that, we can look at the functional impairment factors by age, based on the data that we see. These are factors that would influence your ability to interact with those around you. It's the risk of becoming blind, mute, loss of hearing, disabled, or, or just losing your, your, your sense of self in terms of who you can react to. The next is your risk of losing key relationships. Now again, this is key, this is individually, to, for all of us, will differ. So what we looked at in this particular scenario was the risk that you would outlive your spouse. And what we see is that there's a defined trend in terms of an increasing profile over age, and then in advanced ages, it drops down. And the reason for that is because we looked at it over a cohort of one year, and at, a, at advanced ages, you're more likely to die within a year than you are to be alive. So if you're 95 and your wife passes away in January, it's more likely that you'll be dead anyway by December, compared to the fact that you might live to the next January. So if you put these factors together and we sketch these three incidence rates as a risk rate over time, we can see the same curve as we saw for all of the graphs of an increasing risk over time as we age. If we then invert them and start building an index, we start seeing the building blocks of that quality-adjusted age based on lemon events, your risk of quality of life significantly decreasing as you get older. We then combined them based on a specific weighting and formula, and we got to the graph that we were expecting to see. And the point that we were hoping or looking to identify was this exact point where, A, number one, your quality of life would only decrease from that point onward, and that that, de that, that decrease in quality of life would be not exponentially in terms of, 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 of speed, but would keep on decreasing more and more. So it was a point at which what, what I'm feeling like today is only going to get worse tomorrow and the day after in terms of risk factor, and there's virtually zero probability of that turning around. And why that's important is if you're 40 and you lose a leg in some motorcycle accident or something of that nature, then what it implies is that your quality of life drops significantly, but then it will stabilize. So we were trying to identify the point if we were to apply the same methodology to a dog's life, you would have to say, okay, today is the day that we're taking the trip to the vet. And for that, we built a decay function. It's a, it's a relative function between the two points, one year to the next, and the aim was to identify that point at which that decay function would have those characteristics, decreasing and also zero probability or near zero probability of stabilization. And we found that the decay function of 25 gives us that exact point. And this gives us a contextualization to talk to someone about the risk of living longer than that period and what that would imply from a quality of life perspective and stop thinking about longevity as a single good, as one thing that's always better the more we have of it. And that risk is quantifiable based on the information and the data that's available. And let's take a practical example of this. So if we take Leonard Nimoy, and I did some research, at age 35, he was a smoker, he was married, but he wasn't particularly healthy. We had to make some adjustments for some of the other factors. We didn't have his healthcare data, and the model wasn't really calibrated to Star Trek's payroll, so we made some assumptions there. But we found that we would expect him to live to the grand old age of 79, based on those factors. 
and that his maximum quality adjusted age was 85, which gave him a risk factor of 34. Not a significant factor. But let's say Leonard Nimoy then jumps onto the fitness bandwagon. He stops smoking, he starts eating healthily, and he starts running around and doing exercise. We believe that that is a great thing, and that it would be always great in terms of the marketing that we see. And his age at death increases. He will, he will have this longevity gain that is seen as the holy grail in all of the marketing information that we see. And he gains four additional life years based on that. But his maximum quality-adjusted age only goes up by one year. So what he's done, he's traded additional life years for increased risk. And why is that? Well, it's because by living longer, even with adjustment, even with improvement to your, to your, to your, to your decay function, he's 8% more likely to run out of money. He's 18% more likely to become disabled. He's 32% more likely to have some kind of mental impairment. He's 17% more likely to outlive his spouse, if we assume she adopts the same lifestyle changes. And he's 15% more likely to be diagnosed with some kind of horrible illness. So to put that into context for us in terms of, again, given the audience today, the risk of, of becoming mentally incapacitated as we age is significant. So I'd acknowledge you all, for those given that most of us will live beyond age 85, to take a long, hard look at the sessions that you see today, because it's very unlikely that you're going to remember any of it by the time that you're 85. <laughs> so the question then begs, should Leonard have kept on smoking? Why make the change? And how is it that living longer can actually be bad for us? Well, if we look at the two figures, quality, uh, the, the, the decay function over time with improvement, if you make those lifestyle changes, because they will influence your risk of contracting disease and cancers, and we did work that in, as well as your risk of mortality. We see two key things. The factors that splay out the graphs are different. Quality doesn't change as much, because you've got countervailing things. If I live longer, my money has to last longer. Sure, I'm more healthy and I might be less at risk of getting cancer, but I might still contract some kind of other disease as I become older. And the other one is the shape of the graph. The, the quality index or the decay function has a flatter shape. It increases gradually and then, and then slows down. Mortality on the other side has a more of a J-curve. And if you think about it, it's actually intuitive. Humans have been one of the most successful species on the planet. And the reason for that is we don't die easily. We are hardy buggers. But we do get sick. And your risk of getting sick as you age is much more than the risk of, is of, of actually dying, as my grandfather experienced himself as well. So then the question is, what should we do? What is the logical thing to do? And Leonard Nimoy had it right when they said, one must live long and prosper. And what that implies is that you must actually consider the data. We must look at the data and consider the risks around longevity and minimize that. Only we don't do that. And the question is, why don't we do that? Before I go on, just a little side note. So when we implemented Leonard Nimoy's information into the model, it was quite interesting. It was fun to play with. And he wrote an autobiography called I'm Not Spock. Now, Leonard Nimoy was one of the most typecast characters in the history of film. He was actually a brilliant man. He sang, he wrote, um, he did poetry, and he was also a great producer and writer. But all of us know him as Spock. Interestingly enough, when we implemented his information into the model, the exact most logical time for him to die to minimize his risk was 83. And in 2015, Leonard Nimoy passed away at the age of 83. So I guess he had a bit more of Spock in him than he liked to admit. So then the question is, what is the implications of this as a maximum quality adjusted age, as a measure, or as a factor that we can think about? Well, 
Generally, humans aren't great at thinking about multiple complex things at the same time. We are really good at thinking about one complex thing in isolation into great detail. And we apply the same way of thinking and of being to our everyday lives and, as well as, and also the way that we protect ourselves from future impairments. And we think about these things independently and we make sure that we maximize each one individually. And it's actually encouraged. Most brokers will tell you, diversify your portfolio, spread it out so that you're not exposed to single risks. The problem is when you start looking at how to minimize your longevity risk and adjusting your maximum quality adjusted age, all of these things are actually related. And it begs the question of how do we get all of this into one single framework that we can explain to our clients, being policyholders at the end of the day, so that they can, so that they can minimize their risks. What it also does is it gives us a framework to have this kind of conversation with clients. To stop talking about simply provisioning for if you were to live to 90, but rather saying, why don't we try and minimize your risk in, for, for aging in general, considering all the factors. And ultimately what we should be doing is designing products and thinking about ways to bend this curve outward and flatten it out, so that I don't reach a point of the decay function at age 78 or 88, but rather at age 90. When we did the analysis and we looked at the research, making people live longer is very expensive, as most of us that work in the healthcare sector can attest to. The rising costs are significant. And if you remember the heart valve replacement example that I showed you in the beginning, while the open heart surgery is significantly more violent, it's significantly less expensive than having to use something like a Da Vinci machine, which costs millions of rands to bring into the country. So improving longevity is actually expensive and it's flippin' difficult. For any one of you that has actually invested in heavy exercise, it's, a, it's really a commitment. What we found is that you can actually improve someone's maximum quality-adjusted age much easier for a lower cost. And we believe that this is an area of innovation that will happen in the future, where we start pushing out this graph, given that, we, that the trend is to push one's, one's death later and later. So what I would put to you is that the work that we've done illustrated the need for greater collaboration between the healthcare sector and the life insurance. We need to share information. We need to work together to build these solutions. And ultimately, we want to facilitate brokers and salespeople to sell people products that they really need. And my personal hope is that we will be able to design indexes and results and products that prevent other people from getting into the same situation that my grandfather did of getting to a point where it was so hopeless he just did not want to live anymore. Before I end off, just thank you to the guys that shared data for this instance, and also thank you for everybody that contributed to the research. Thank you very much. Thanks, Daniel. You certainly did not disappoint um, and touched on many uh, controversial and interesting areas. Uh, you've done us another great favor of saving a little bit of time, so there's plenty of time for questions. Um, and if I can see any hands with this bright light shining in my eye, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity. Any, uh, any questions, any points you'd like to push, any disagreeing views? There's one at the back. Oh, there's one right at the back there with a the hand waving wildly. Thank you. Just before we go to questions, please, no questions on why I didn't use anybody from Star Wars. <laughs> I 
I've noticed in a number of uh, presentations in the last day and a half that the idea of insurance as a pooled as a pool of risks almost seems to be falling away. Um, it's possible to insure yourself against longevity risk. It's called an annuity for people who can still remember those, a life annuity. Uh, I appreciate that um, companies are less, perhaps less willing because they've been burnt by uh, uh, improvements in, in, uh, in mortality. Um, but a lot of what you seem to be saying is treating everyone as if they were one individual uh, who has to provide that cover for themselves without a risk pool. Um, do you think that's going to continue? Is there some way for that to be uh, promoted? Because certainly most product providers will put you straight into a, um, a living annuity, whatever the risks of that may be. Sure, that's a good point. So I, I think there's two factors one needs to consider. The first is the conversation that needs to happen with the client when you design products. And the conversation around that primarily is about insuring yourself for individual events. And then the second conversation is how do we insure ourselves for that? And a living annuity is a great example of how you, come, how you, how you can transfer some of those risks and delay them. The, point, the problem is the market generally is moving away from some of those products. And it's because of a trend towards people believing that life is going to be great as they age and there's never going to be an impact around that. So I think that what one should be doing, or what I'm, what I'm proposing, is that one shouldn't look at anything in isolation. A living annuity will solve one problem, but there's other problems that necessarily can't save. And there's insurance products that you can design around that. Think about it as saying, let's structure something with a living annuity and say, if you reach your maximum quality adjusted age and you, exclude, and you exceed that by two or three years, you get a lump sum payment, similar to what you get for a critical illness as well. So you're quite right. The, the idea is that we start thinking about this not just in singularity. And the point is that we can build products, and they are there. We're just not selling them like we should. Any other questions comments? Carl? Thanks for the presentation. I think uh, we'll spend a lot of thinking in this space for the next few de decades. I think, however, that um, there is some points that we need to also uh, highlight. Uh, very clearly, we have to rethink about normal retirement age. Uh, and immediately, the challenge that brings into society is um, enough jobs or enough work. And uh, as you also alluded to, that um, there's some clear lifestyle choices that influence longevity. So um, I think, uh, broadly speaking, uh, we as uh, Western societies, at least, should consider um, making it uh, formal that you're not supposed to retire at 65 and uh, to almost solve the problem of not enough jobs, uh, maybe we should just work four days per week. <laughs> I'm going to applaud that. It's a great example. Um, Terrible. <laughs> so, so, so you're quite right, Cora. I mean, the idea of retirement is very much a modern construct. I mean, 150 years ago, retirement was redundant. And in many, in many third world countries, the concept of retirement doesn't exist. Um, retirement happened when we started living longer and people realized that they're able to build wealth throughout their lifetime that would be sufficient to take care of them 
when they're older and they don't need to work anymore. But you're quite right. When we started living longer and longer and longer, your money isn't able to or sufficient to last that long. It is a unique problem, though, in South Africa in that we've got a, while other countries have this, have this billowing older population, um, China being a great example of that, South Africa has the other problem. We've got this billowing younger population. So, as you, as you rightly pointed out, it is a significant challenge of creating jobs the way we should if you, if you keep people in, in work 70 or 75. Certainly, most of us would be able to work to age, although I don't know if I would be wanting two and a half centimeters of loss of brain capacity. Um, for my manager if he's 75. But the point is that we would face that problem then of this growing younger population just not getting opportunities to be employed or having to wait. And a great example of that um, was, a, was a book, I know it's been referenced in some of the other examples as well, about um, Atul Gawande, it's called Being Mortal. And he talks about uh, how, what life is like when we die and when we get older. And for those of you that haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. I wasn't able to get through it, it was just too depressing. Um, he described what happens when you age, and then he just ended up saying, well, that's normal. Um, but one of the things he mentioned was that his own grandfather lived to the age of 110. And his uncles, at age 70, he, he, was, he, uh, he, he was from India, had to wait for the inheritance until they were into their 70s before they could start getting that. So it's, it's a little bit of a contextualization of that problem as well. There's another question behind there. It's just a question around your modeling where you're looking at the relationship thing, which I think is hugely important. You've assumed that the, the key relationship is with a spouse. And yet, you know, take Atul Gawande as an example. You know, it's, and, in, and in South Africa, 74% of our elderly live in multi-generational mm -hmm. households. And so maybe what we're not doing as an industry is that we're not focusing on how we can help the whole household, the whole mm -hmm. family solve problems. Because yes, we will be taking, we, we do have the sandwich generation thing and it's not gonna go away. So what we've done is that we've taken from the Western perspective this, this idea that an individual is solely responsible for themselves, which is hugely unrealistic. So I'm almost looking at a crowdsourcing or a, some sort of a, I, I'm all for communes for the elderly, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. We need to move to something more like that because that relationship thing is absolutely key. I completely agree with that. I think that's a, that's a great point. Uh, the, the reason we used just the information of the spouse is because the information was available. Death data between children and adults isn't really available, but there's, there's many, many relational factors you can, you can explore in that sense. And I agree with you, the, the constructs in terms of this example is more fitting to Western society with the idea of going into a nursing home or being removed from the family, as horrible as that sounds, um, is, is more culturally acceptable. Certainly in, for the majority of people in South Africa, as well as in Africa, India and other countries, um, the parents or the grandparents would be cared for. Uh, if you look at places like India, nursing homes are virtually non-existent. And even in the US, there was a backlash between nursing homes where people were treated from a medical perspective. They treated aging as a medical problem. Um, and there was a backlash in the, in the 80s where people had changed to assisted living rooms, where people were able to have autonomy and able to live their lives in, with, with, with security and care rather than being a patient in an institution. So I agree with you. There's a question over here. 
Thank, <clears throat> thanks. Very much enjoyed the talk and very thought-provoking. I'd like to make an observation or two. The first is that it shouldn't be surprising that your DK function matched your starting position because you effectively created the index to arrive at the point. <clears throat> and that's very much folk-based Sorry, on your on the Western philosophy of what quality of life is and the components that make that up. And uh, I think if there's room for further exploration, it, it might be that, certainly in different contexts or different countries, where your benchmark or, or your index of quality of life is maybe not the most important thing. Um, or, or maybe there are other aspects that are more important. I, I think the next question, though, is what to do with this. So it's, it's nice and it, it's useful as a tool to think about it. Um, I suppose the implication from your Leonard Nimoy example was perhaps many of us should take up smoking, um, or, or maybe at some point in time it's time to put Grandpa in the car and take him to the vet. That, that implication is, is not nice to think about, uh, but it is something that's happening in Europe, um, and it shouldn't be ignored with all of the philosophical and uh, ethical implications that it has. Thank you. I, I would agree completely with your first point in that quality of life is very dependent on each individual but also to a cultural factor and certainly the financial dependence waiting in a third world country would be very low. In fact, um, to use an example, in those countries where the, the elderly live with the family, they usually retain ownership and usually still give input on business decisions. Um, to, to use an example, uh, the, the, the Atul Gwande's father who wrote the book died at 110, not from old age, but he was on his way to a courthouse to have a family dispute sorted out as the, as the presiding elder, and he fell off a bus. Um, so it, it, I agree completely that the, the scenario we painted is for a first world scenario, and if we go and we extrapolate it to third world countries, um, it would look completely different. You raise difficult ethical questions in terms of euthanasia and the like. Um, I'm not going not to tread into that area. But it is something that people are thinking about. Um, and it is an area that, that, is, that is difficult to conceptualize. I would rather put out that the conversations that we should be having is stop treating aging from a, medic, from a, health, point, from a, from a, from a healthcare perspective as a medical problem. For instance, if an 83-year-old contracts cancer, the current model in South Africa at least is to treat because we've, that's the stick that we can beat that disease with. I would say that there's implications that we can say, well, what is the actual impact of that treatment? Relating to what we do with the index, we are going to try and see if we can use it as a platform to engage with clients more effectively, to inform people and break down the information asymmetries between the things, or be between the different aspects. The challenge is for a consumer that's completely inverse, and I'm using my own family here as an example as well. If I had to give this presentation to, to my folks or my parents, it would, it, would, it would not reach its goal. But if I could have a conversation with them around ensuring they have a good quality of life at older ages, based on the characteristics that will define quality of life for them, that's an interesting model that you can build from a broker's perspective. It will be more appropriate in terms of sales, and it will also allow us to build products more appropriately. And ultimately, what I hope that it does, it allows us to think about the implications of longevity when we change these things, when we start shifting out the death point across that aging index, however that index looks for anyone, because healthcare also has an impact in third world countries. Um, we need to start thinking about what that implies for the quality of that life. There's another question there. Uh, yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, <clears throat> what is the ETA on downloading my consciousness into an AI machine? 
And well, maybe to ask that another way, you mentioned that our children are going to have much superior access to healthcare. Is there like a chance I can just hold out until some magic done, medical sure. advancement? I would certainly hope so. I can tell you, I mean, the story that Barry told in the beginning is I'll get teased at the office quite often in terms of how I'm hoping for, like, of just being able to replace limbs with machines and things like that. The, again, it raises significant ethical questions. Research has been done, as I said in the presentation, that's able to make fruit flies live twice as long. Single gene modifications. It doesn't mean you change the animal's genome or change what it is. The research is there. The ethical concerns around that are very difficult. And it starts playing in with things like how many animals, how many people can the planet support? If we all live to the age of 150, what happens, right? The idea of downloading your consciousness is one that's commonly put forward. And if you listen to the guys like um, Elon Musk, we're not that far off. People talk about the exponential growth of AI and how we as humans don't conceptualize that. We, we can't theorize or understand what that means with things increasing at an exponential rate. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert in terms of AI, so I can't tell you if there's a time frame, but it is something that we are seeing more and more, even with engagements with our own clients. The conversations we had with clients about big data technology and, 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 and the way we positioned it and talked about it a year ago is completely outdated to the conversation we're having tomorrow. So it is definitely impacting the way that we do business, and it will definitely impact the way that we, um, that we engage in healthcare. Some of the exciting innovations for my kids, it's completely feasible that if they were to if, uh, that at their age, when they're 21, they will have robots inside their bloodstream that fixes things as they break, as they happen. Um, that technology already exists. Uh, there's great uh, information on YouTube, and I'll actually try and share the link via the association. I'll sort of a robot. It's about the size of your, of your micro SD card on the palm of your hand, and it folds up, and it falls out. And, you in, and you, the idea is that they imprint that into your bloodstream. It goes to where the area is needed. It fixes that area, and then it dissolves, and you pass it out like you would pass out minerals. That technology already exists. So quite soon is what I'm hoping to give you the answer. Thank you for the presentation. Um, while we're being, being gloomy, I'm going to indulge. Um, so this model considers the personal factors like your age or your health, but there's also, in terms of the quality index, the external things like the planet. Um, so, for example, I mean, while I'm going to be 80 with dementia, I'm also going to be extremely hot while having dementia. <laughs> um, um, plus, you won't even have water. I mean, I come from Cape Town. So, I mean... Um, so I think it's obviously impossible to do that, but it's a very real thing as well. I mean, in terms of the planet and the resources, if we all live till 150, I mean, like my children or whatever will probably live in a temperature of, I don't know, 10 degrees higher and all have skin cancer. So that's another thing I think that could be added to the quality index. Um, and then this is more a personal question to you. Why do you think we avoid this so much in, in current generations? I mean, two or three hundred years ago, it was very real. I'm going to be attacked by an army. I have a, a cave. You know, I'm going to die. Whereas we all avoid that. I mean, my own mother confuses my name with my brother's. We just all avoid it. No. <laughs> Why do you think it's that? Yeah, what is your view? Okay. So, so great questions. Uh, firstly, I'm also from Cape Town, so I am hoarding all of these water bottles to so take them back. Um, so... I mean, so, so you, can, you can extrapolate it to many other things that will influence quality of life. And you're quite right. Uh, the question remains, if, you, if, you, if we're able to live to 150, uh, you know, I kind of get back to, to the guy that spoke at ICA saying being 100 would suck. Well, maybe then if we can fix the things that would make life not be great at 100, we'll encounter different 
things at 150, that would mean life wouldn't be great. Um, but you're quite right. I mean, the model can be extrapolated to look at environmental factors, and there you can look at country-specific factors. Um, I mean, if some of the global warming predictions are, if you believe Donald Trump, you don't have anything to worry about. Um, if the global warming predictions are correct, you know, other areas will green, so it will be different for different areas and different uh, places. To get to the other question in terms of why we avoid it, uh, it's very interesting culturally. So 50 years ago, if you looked at census data, age was seen as a good thing. People overestimated their age. They said that they were older than they were because that imbued some kind of ability to live long. It imbued some kind of experience. It was prized to be old. People were consulted. Today's life, we flip that around. Youth is prized. And we constantly hear this idea that you know, the youth is the next generation and they're, the, they're the, the next big thing, which is true. What we forget about is that the generation of now is the ones that are, that are guiding us. And the second reason is just basically it's not attractive. Uh, I think we want to avoid it because of our own optimism bias. None of us want to think about the idea of, of your own folks becoming completely physically dependent on you, or yourself for that matter. So I think it's a natural optimism bias to try and avoid it. It's definitely part of my life strategy to try and go out in a blaze of glory before I get there. Any other questions? Mm. Thanks for the presentation. Um, the one comment on the med tech stuff is that I've read a lot of articles on a lot of work that's been done. So like your 3D printing where they can literally just print a kidney for you. Mm. Um, so basically it does look like people will live longer than, you know. Um, and I also know that Elon Musk is working on some net thing that they can put in on your brain um, to sort of help you live longer. And I'm assuming also for like a lot of mental illnesses. But my question really is on the um, most of the risk graphs that I've seen in your presentation. So when you're comparing different genders, you're sort of seeing at the early ages, it's like females are like high at risk. And then there's sort of like a crossover point at like 40 or 45, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then males are more at risk after that. Is that something you've looked at? And what are the reasons for, for, for that? That's, that's a great question. So firstly, the, the, the technology you're referring to from Elon Musk uh, is called the Neuronet. The idea is that information can only be processed in your body, in your brain, to a certain speed because of the biological impediments to that. So the idea is that they literally, you implant a neural network of computer chips, uh, not computer chips, but computer fibers across your, your brain, and then that inf interfaces with your brain to help you process information. And the idea is literally that you can download everything you need to know to be a doctor in a couple of hours. You can literally download information into your brain. It's very exciting. Scary for actuaries, given that we spend a lot of time downloading information manually. Um, the graphs you refer to, females are more at risk at younger ages from many of the things due to the complications of childbirth quite often. The crossover point then happens because men generally don't age well. And you'll have this theme quite currently. If you look at the mental health graphs, the difference is, that is, is most acute for those guys. Men are much more prone to have some kind of mental illness when they're older than, than women are compared to the difference between the two. And it's fascinating. If you actually look at the data, the trends for geriatric males and females, the difference is exactly the same as the trends for infants. So if you had 100 babies that were born, 50 of them being male and 50 being female, the survival rate for the female babies would be much higher than for the male babies. And if you had 100 geriatrics in a room, it's the, the, the bigger chance for dementia, death, and disease would be much higher for males. So, in general, men just aren't as great as women. My wife would love me saying that. Sorry, and just a follow-up question on that. Yes. So, um, on the mental illness part, 
would you say that it's mostly environmental and social like um, factors? So maybe when women are younger, they've got a lot of stress from like society and everything else, as compared to, or is this like a a, um, a biological thing? Mm. It's a, so, so what's interesting there is you actually need long-term studies to, deti- to, to define that. So one aspect is related to the normal atrophy of our brain as we age. Um, but there are environmental factors that, 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 that influence that. Um, for instance, if you look at people that, that have a tribal uh, life, uh, the Tano Mara Indians that live in a completely secluded lifestyle in, uh, in, in, the, in, in Mexico have got much lower levels of mental illness. And they also have, and what makes them interesting is they actually don't have low average ages. They live to average ages of 80 to 90, but their cancer rates are virtually non-existent. They don't have mental illness at those ages. So there are certainly environmental factors that play in. The challenge is we don't really know to what extent that happens in our own society. But generally, there has to be an impact from stress and the way that we live our lives. Um, and it's one of, the, one of the driving factors, if you remember the graph of the Canadian slowdown in mortality, one of the things that are being put out in terms of why we stopped living longer and longer is because we're living in an unnatural society. We just weren't designed to live in this futuristic world. That's just a theory. It's not my viewpoint. The room is too big. Maybe just two last closing points from me. So again, thank you very much for a fascinating session, uh, Daniel. Uh, The one is um, that that we see more and more uh, that there needs to be greater synergy between an understanding of health and the traditional life insurance model. The way that life insurance products, both assurance models and annuity models, have been developed sort of, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, is now incredibly old and out of date. Uh, And we really need to, to push the synergy between those two sectors. Um, and then absolutely to have better conversations uh, between uh, uh, call centers and brokers and customers about what's important to them so that we can design the right products for their needs instead of this uh, very bland, when you die you get some money, when you get a dread disease you get some money. It really is uh, divorced from the, the living experience um, of, of, of people. So those are my last two closing points. But thank you very much, Daniel, for a, for a great talk. So we, we ended on time. Thanks to all the questions. Thank you all for being so engaging. Um, I think it's lunch now. See you later.